Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I hope your day has been uh, well, and I hope you are in a good mood. I've got a great show for you. Um, Rob Bluey, who normally does this slot on Tuesday, is unavailable. So we have not messed around. We've gone right to the top. We've gotten, we have the executive vice president of the Heritage Foundation, um, Mr. Derek Morgan, with us today. Derek, welcome. Thank you. It's very Good to be with you, and I have to say, Rob's a much better looking man than me. But thankfully for everybody, we're on radio. <laughs> he, he is a charming, good looking guy, and he—he he he never ju- ages. No, he it's doesn't. Amazing. Yeah, no. It, you know, so uh, yeah. But uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be with you. I've heard a lot of great things about the show. Yeah, it's a great show. And I what? I just got a text from Rob. It's just coming in right now. He. Ask Derek to give me a raise. That's kind of inappropriate, don't you think? <laughs> Not, yeah, I'm helping him out, and he wants a raise for that. Now. Yeah, isn't yeah. that just like Rob? Yeah. It but is. You, you have an amazing team over there. We had Genevieve Wood on last week because Rob was busy as well. But um, so Excellent. Great, great folks. So thank you for joining me. I'm very honored that you can be here. And I know you come from a background of uh, being in the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers which is a trade association. And I would love to ask mm-hmm. this question because it's really one I've never really gotten answered well. What are the factors that affect gas prices? Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked. Um, you know, it's a, it's a global market for oil and for refined products. So it's very much a global supply and demand um, equation that you've got to deal with. You know, with these, uh, the, the actually the oil industry, even though you buy oil or gasoline rather at a sign, the store might say Exxon, it's it's actually 60% of gas stations are owned by a sole proprietor, and they're purchasing gasoline from uh, an independent uh, refiner, most likely, and they're probably getting oil uh, from a different company altogether. So it's a very very, um, efficient market. Uh, You know, all the prices are clear. Uh, there's signs on every corner. So there's a lot of good price competition, but at the end of the day, there's a certain amount of oil that can be produced and it tries to be matched up with the demand. And when it gets out of whack, like it did during COVID Mm -hmm. and everybody stopped driving all at once and we all enjoyed the very low prices. (laughs) Uh, and then it came roaring back when people started to get back on the road and there just wasn't the production there. And, um, sadly we've seen kind of a, uh, a change in the attitude toward uh, the oil and gas industry, particularly from from the current administration, where mm-hmm. it's kind of they don't really want to see more American production. And when you have lower production, lower supply, that ends up being higher prices. Yeah, Derek, what is, what are the profit margins for gas station owners? Very very small. That's what I thought. Um, yeah, most of the owners they're going to make more money, a higher margin on you know the snacks, uh, uh, the other things that the coke. Coke they're selling or Dr. Pepper, whatever it is they're selling inside the store. That's where they're going to make most of their money. They, the fuel is typically uh, just a few cents on the dollar, and then uh, they try to get people to come into the store where they make the real money. I would think if I owned a gas station, because sometimes there's two gas stations at a corner, and they're both 
advertising the same price, I would think I'd want to drop my price a nickel because I would get all the customers. That's right. And, you know, they, it's, uh, that's why usually when you notice a gas station by itself is, is um, sometimes they're a better deal. And there's like so many good apps these days that you can use and information. Um, but, uh, you know, for I think about 30 to 40 percent of customers buy it based on convenience. So they're not going to, you know, go out of their way to, to save uh, 10 cents or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it's across the street, maybe they can get in easier on one of the stations versus the other. So it's a, it's a very interesting market, but uh, you're, you're exactly right. It's mostly small proprietors. Less than 5% of stations are owned by uh, by the corporations that produce oil upstream. And it's mostly folks who have an investment and, you know, they may be clear, um, you know, somewhere in the forty to $60,000 range. And it's mostly on the concessions they sell in the store. Mm-hmm. Derek, what is the process for diesel and why why is that in such a scarce scarcity right now? Well, I'm glad you asked. I actually drive a diesel car. Oh wow! And uh, it's uh, it's pretty routinely been above a dollar more expensive this year, and uh, upwards of a dollar fifty or more more expensive now. And that kind of happens cyclically. In the winter time, uh, diesel is in demand as a heat source, especially in the Northeast United States and our country. Uh, so there's a lot of folks that use fuel oil up in New England, and um, so that's a direct. It's basically the same part of the oil that's refined that's used for home heating oil as for diesel. So in the winter, you usually see even a bigger spread. But the fundamental problem right now is Europe. Uh, they have a lot of diesel uh, demand there, mm-hmm. and they're not able to get any of the diesel fuel that they uh, were getting from Russia. And so there's a big crunch in the market, and that's driving the price up. Mr. Derek Morgan is my guest. He's the executive vice president at the Heritage Foundation. And Derek, I'd love to get uh, your response to last week's midterms. Yes. Uh, you know, it, it was a little disappointing for conservatives, I would say. There was an expectation that uh, conservatives would um, get perhaps both houses, uh, the House and the Senate. And uh, I think they're, they haven't quite officially announced it. Some of the networks have called the House for uh, the Republican Party. Uh, and, of course, on the Senate side, there's one more race to be had. But no matter what happens there, it looks like the Democrats will retain control there. So I think a lot of conservatives were were disappointed. Uh, you had a president who had, of, a, of the Democratic Party who had a very high unfavorability. Uh, he had you know low job approval. And there was a sense that that was going to be enough to help a lot of people come into office. And that just didn't happen. It really wasn't as much a national election. It was kind of uneven here and there. So you'd have in Arizona, you had three uh, very close house races that all went the Republicans way, but the the Senate and the governor's race went the other way. And I think every statewide office except for one went for the Democrats there. And so, um, you know, you've got a lot of people scratching their head and uh, frankly, a lot of people pointing their fingers of uh, blame on the Republican side of the aisle right now. Mm-hmm. How surprised were you around the Heritage Foundation? You know, a little surprised. Yep. Um, our president had predicted, of course, we're nonpartisan here, right. uh, but we do take great interest in it. And our president had predicted that it would be, uh, you know, uh, um, Republicans would take both houses with a fairly sizable majority in the House and 52, 53 seats in the Senate. And mm-hmm. I was thinking roughly the same. And that's a lot of what people here were thinking. You kind of saw that even uh, President Biden's team early in the day on Election Day were kind of tweeting out signals that they were kind of battening down the hatches and ready for a 
ready for a wave themselves that never, never really materialized. So I think it's fair to say we were surprised just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Derek, if you would talk about the five big pro-life losses in the midterm elections. Yeah, Bill, this was, um, you know, perhaps the most disturbing of uh, all the results. And you had, um, you had measures on abortion in five states in California and uh, Vermont, which you'd kind of expect and not necessarily expect to hear good things from those states. But there were also measures in Kentucky and Montana uh, that are more on the uh, conservative side of the spectrum. And then you had Michigan, which is smack dab in the middle, and they all voted to further abortion to varying mm-hmm. degrees. And it's um, it's really disturbing. I look at especially at a place uh, like Montana that had a, a provision that would protect babies that were kind of inadvertently born during a botched abortion and that they deserve medical care, just like any other human being would. And uh, about 57 percent of Montanans vote, voted against that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I think there's a, an ed, a voter education um, gap. And I think that, you know, broadly speaking, the pro-life side of things is just really outgunned. I saw numbers for some of these states of 30 to one spending. Wow. And it really enthused uh, the, uh, the Democratic side. And unfortunately, today, the parties are just mirror opposites on this issue. There's not really pro-life Democrats and there's not very many pro-choice Republicans anymore. And um, they they really used it to great effect to to drive out their voters. I saw numbers that um, it was effective, unfortunately, among younger Americans in particular. So it's the second highest turnout for those 30 and under Mm -hmm. in a midterm election. And some uh, analysts are are pointing to uh, the life issue as one of those reasons. Interesting. Let's talk about voter integrity. How do you think it went down this election? Well, it's kind of clear to me that some states learn their lesson and fix the problems and other states just continue on their merry way. And we keep seeing some of the same states. I'm old enough to, uh, to remember a bill that Florida was a laughingstock uh, in the country 22 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might remember the, the meme of the, the gentleman who was, wearing very thick glasses or he had a magnifying glass. He was trying to examine a ballot for a hanging chad, you know, one of those, uh, those little uh, paper <laughs> yep. things that just holding on by a thread and they fixed it. Uh, they, uh, they cleaned up their roles. Um, they have early voting, but it stops the Sunday before election so that they can start tabulating those votes. And you don't have this uh, item like you had in Arizona where you had 300,000 people dropped off ballots just on the day of voting mail-in ballots and, um, you know, that you, got, you have to go through a process with a mail-in ballot, uh, as you should, right? You can't just have random ballots in the mail without any kind of identification measures to make sure it's legitimate. And I think a place like Florida with in-person early voting that ends early, like that's pretty orderly. You know, on election mm-hmm. night what happened mm-hmm. versus this, you know, particularly you think of like Maricopa County in Arizona. It just keeps going on and on and on. And this was one of the critiques I think that people had on the Republican side of the aisle was a lack of a policy uh, perspective mm-hmm. announced of what they're really for, not just the other guy's bad, but here's what we're for. And then also the execution was poor. So in a place, uh, let me take, take Arizona, for example. In Arizona on election day, 
eight out of 10 people that were going to vote had already voted. Wow. And Republicans kind of haven't adjusted to that reality. You know, we've kind of stuck with uh, a traditional view, if you will, of, you know, we've got election day and everybody should go out on election day in person and, and cast a vote. And, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for that. In fact, I think that's not a bad policy. It kind of uh, cuts down on the shenanigans that can happen. But once you've got the rules in place, you know, both political parties ought to be, and, and independents for that matter, ought to be competing for every vote and trying to get people out early because from a turnout perspective, you love people voting early. You've got a list of, you know, a thousand people in your precinct that you want to make sure vote. If 600 of them vote early, then you got to worry about 400 people on election day instead of a thousand. So it just makes it logistically a lot easier. And I think to large measure, the Democrats got particularly good at that during COVID and just before that to where it's a whole election season for them. And they're harvesting, you know, votes the entire election season, 72 days in some places. And Republicans are still kind of stuck on election day. Wow. Uh, let me take a little break. Derek Morgan is my guest. He is the executive vice president at the Heritage Foundation. If you have a question or comment for Mr. Morgan, you can text it over. It's open 877 Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome to the show. If you tune in this time on this day of the week, you usually hear Rob Bluey. And so glad to have Mr. Derek Morgan in place of Rob, he is the executive vice president at the Heritage Foundation. Um, Derek, uh, I'm, you know, I'm so impressed with the way that Florida's uh, election took place, and it was done quickly. And like you said, they did stop early voting in advance. And are states learning from each other, or do they see what Florida did and say, not interested in doing it that way? We have our own way of doing it. Yeah, well, there's a there's definitely an element of that. And like, unfortunately, so much else in our life right now, it becomes really partisan. And there's, um, you know, a, a strong view on the Democratic side that says we need to maximize the number of people of participating and not put, you know, restrictions really of any kind on. And then you've got the Republican side that is much more concerned on the fraud side and wants to have what they view as common sense proposals. I think Florida gets it about right. Um, we've tried to help states um, in this area by having our election scorecard. So what we do is we have uh, provisions that all the states are ranked on so that states can compare and contrast. And we tell them, here's how you can improve on your scorecard. Uh, if you have voter ID, if you, um, you know, early voting is fine, but have it cut off at some point, uh, you know, things like that. And then states can kind of compete with one another to get uh, better scores on the scorecard. Mm-hmm. Question came in, Derek, why do vote counting issues only seem to occur in Democratic-controlled states? 
Yeah. Well, um, you know, Arizona was had a Republican governor. Um, Georgia last time had a Republican governor and a Republican Secretary of State. Mm-hmm. So All right. it's not it's not only Republican states. That, uh, but I would I'd probably agree with the overall impetus of the question, which is it seems to happen more in Democratic states. And I think that's because the two parties have these two views, right? Um, I think my views are best summed up of make it easy to vote, but hard to cheat. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think you can have both. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when it gets to be a partisan issue, sometimes, um, unfortunately, particularly on the Democratic side, any sort of restrictions are kind of viewed as, oh, you're just doing this to try to get an advantage in the upcoming election, or even worse, is implying that you somehow don't want uh, a group of people voting, whether it be minorities or, or what have you. So um, I think, you know, uh, you look at Pennsylvania has been horrendous for a long time. Um, and usually the we're going to see the problem the most in states that are close, to be honest. Yeah. Right. Because, you know, nobody really Florida didn't have a problem this time. <laughs> Governor DeSantis got about 60 percent of the vote. So you know, even if there had been problems, there's you know, there's not that big of a problem. So, uh, you know, I think every state needs to take seriously uh, the integrity of an election. We we cannot survive as a republic if people do not have confidence in the outcomes of our elections. And so, to me, uh, it's got it's got to be you know balancing that accessibility and some no nonsense. Really, what shouldn't be controversial things like voter ID. I mean, that's a, supported by well more than eighty percent of the people when you look at it when it's polled. You know, just those kind of few common sense things really should be the should be the ticket from coast to coast. Mm-hmm. Derek, did Russia admit to meddling in our election? I don't think they've admitted it, um, but you know there uh, there are some indications of China, Russia, others uh, trying to to stoke up division in the United States, particularly on social media. And so, you know, meddling in the election sounds really. Uh, horrible. <laughs> it it does. horrible, and it is horrible mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that it happens. But uh, you know, it's it's kind of in their interest to get us uh, at each other's throats. And frankly, these days it doesn't seem like we need a lot of encouragement to do that. <laughs> and so, uh, I do think there is um, some evidence of uh, Russia and, to some extent, China. You know, trying to stoke those divisions in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Here's a question that came in, uh, Derek. What is the process to choose the next Republican presidential candidate? Yeah, this is a um, fascinating process, uh, and each of the states determine the party. The state parties decide when they want to have either a caucus or a primary. Those are the two main ways. A caucus is kind of the party members get together uh, and have a, a, a party meeting. Uh, where uh, they caucus or they decide how many of them are going to kind of physically group together under each candidate's name, and they have a couple different rounds, and delegates are decided that way. So the first caucus in the nation has traditionally been Iowa, and anytime any state tries to get ahead of Iowa, then Iowa legislature passes a bill and says, we're going to do it earlier than that. And so uh, we've actually now pretty pretty clear going to be uh, as early as January of uh, 2024 that will have, you know, the first kind of primaries and caucuses and they'll wind through the country. Um, it, uh, traditionally Iowa and New Hampshire have been first. Nevada's pretty early also South Carolina also. And it's 
kind of a neat process too, because particularly smaller states like New Hampshire and Iowa that have a lot of small towns, smaller communities, you know, at least their argument is they really examine the candidates. They take this very seriously. And there's a lot of kind of retail politics where people are meeting the candidates face to face rather than just being a huge kind of television advertising bonanza. So mm-hmm. uh, that's kind of the process. They'll um, keep compete in the primaries until they've accumulated enough delegates uh, to secure the nomination. And then the parties have conventions usually over the summertime uh, where there's not a lot of uh, drama at those in terms of who's going to actually be the nominee. It ends up being pretty much uh, pre uh, decided because of the all those primaries. And then at that point, they're just trying to showcase their candidate to the national audience. Mm -hmm. Derek, can you speak about the meeting between uh, Biden and China? This is another listener question. Uh, Biden seems to trust China. What do you think? It's, it's really disturbing. Um, Really uh, China is one of the seven priority issues that we've identified at heritage that we think in the next uh, couple of years, and frankly, it'll be beyond that, but it has to be a focus of the United States. They are an adversary of the United States. They are not hiding the fact that they want to supplant uh, the United States as the major power in Asia and perhaps beyond. And they're controlled by a communist party that uh, is, uh, is evil, frankly. And so we've got to stand up against China and recognize that they have been uh, stealing jobs and technology for decades. Uh, we've um, we tried the old pattern of, hey, if we trade with them, they'll become more democratic. Uh, then we had Tiananmen Square. We saw what they did in Hong Kong. Uh, what they are is obvious to all. And so we need to treat them that way. And instead, you know, just uh, just on Monday, President Biden went to meet with Xi, the leader who's uh, just been elected in scare quotes <laughs> for his third term as president. <laughs> he's gone He's just, you know, he's skipped past uh, uh, the tradition, which is that you'd serve two terms as the chairman of the party. He's now in his third term and on his way to chairman for life, putting himself on the same kind of uh, level as Mao. Anyway, the two, uh, President Biden and President Xi, met on the sidelines of the Group of 20 summit. And it was just a really sad propaganda victory for Xi because the video shows Biden kind of excitedly rushing across the stage to shake hands while Xi is just standing there. Mm. It makes him look like a supplicant. And these are the kind of minor details that you would expect someone who claims to have, you know, four decades of foreign policy experience that he would kind of understand these subtleties. Uh, But this isn't the first time he's done it either. He had a a Zoom meeting with Xi and um, they were able to turn that into a propaganda win also because it made it look like Xi was lecturing and they showed Biden taking a bunch of notes. So it made it like he was, you know, a supplicant uh, to, to Xi. So I don't I don't know if you remember, Bill, but I remember Ronald Reagan. And when he met with Gorbachev yeah, in Reykjavik or in, you know, in some of the other summits where here you have. You know what, Derek, I hate to say this, but we're, we're running out of time, and, and you've just been oh. a fascinating guest, and I don't want this oh. to end, but I, I do have to say thank you, and that's all yeah, the time we have. Of course. Yeah, thank Excellent. you so much. Well, yeah, my pleasure to join you. All right, thank you so much. Derek Morgan has been my guest, Executive Vice President of the Heritage Foundation. We'll be back in just a minute with Dr. Greg Borgon.
Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Greg Borgon with me. And especially after we had this conversation about the election and the midterms, and uh, that can create a lot of um, uh, emotion for people. So let's remind ourselves today that we are citizens of heaven. We're going to talk about that today. He is the president and founder of Heart of a, War- Heart of a Warrior's uh, Ministries. You can learn more about him at heartofawarrior.org. Welcome back, Greg. It's good to be here. Yeah, so let's talk about our true citizenship. Well, you know, I couldn't think of a more appropriate topic in light of just coming right off of the elections, which actually we're still in the middle of, and who knows whenever it's going to end. But I'm sure, regardless of what side of the aisle your audience is on, they probably came away from this. Yeah, both. Yeah. They came away from this with some degree of disappointment, maybe some despair, some discouragement. And so it's so easy. Or some joy. Oh, yeah, or some joy. Yeah. But um, it's so easy to be caught up into the milieu of the temporal and forget where our identity lies. You know, I think it's good, Bill, that we remind ourselves of what citizenship really means. You know, when I go to Ireland, you know I'm going to get Ireland in somehow, right? I figured. Yeah. That's just to rub it in. <laughs> when I go to Ireland, I need a passport, proof that, you know, I'm a, I'm a citizen of the U.S. So being a citizen carries with it not only rights and benefits, but obligations and responsibilities on a temporal level. And we have s- similar um, rights and benefits and obligations and responsibilities on the spiritual level. But let's just, just to get a, a, an anchor point here, let's just talk very briefly about what it means to be a citizen period. So um, the Constitution and the laws of the U.S., they give many rights to us as citizens. Voting is one of them bringing family members to the U.S., obtaining citizenship for our children born abroad, traveling for uh, with a U.S. passport, becoming eligible for federal jobs, or even becoming an elected official. But along with those rights um, come some pretty heavy responsibilities, giving over all prior allegiance to any other nation or sovereignty is one of them, uh, swearing allegiance to the U.S., uh, serving the country when required, Responsibility to participate in the political process by registering and voting in elections, which we just went through, and certainly serving on a jury. So those are our responsibilities along with the benefits that accrue. But let's think about the spiritual uh, dimension of all of this because we have two possibilities. One is being citizen of the world, and the other is being a citizen of the kingdom of God. So let's just talk about that a little bit. In an article entitled, uh, What Does It Mean That Our Citizenship Is in Heaven? The author contrasts the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of heaven from the perspective of citizenship. So a citizen is a person who legally belongs to a country and has the rights and protection of that country. Citizens adopt the culture and practices of the nation or kingdom to which they belong. Now, the interesting thing on a spiritual level, Bill, every human being is born into the kingdom of this world, which is under the dominion of the evil one, Satan. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 and 1 John 5, 9, the God of this world has blinded the minds of, the, of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Now, he's been called the ruler of this world in John 12, 31, the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, So he has dominion, but it's limited. God has placed some boundaries around him. Mm -hmm. He only has dominion over unbelievers. And so until you receive uh, 
Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, your passport is of this world, Mm -hmm. and you're under the dominion of the evil one. So consequently, we grow up adopting the culture, the practices, the values of the enemy, the ones that he instigates. It says in 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires uh, of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. Satan's kingdom enslaves its citizens, according to Romans 6.16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness? So we have darkened hearts and minds. We blindly follow our leader into the very sins that pull us deeper into the slavery. We remain captives in this kingdom of sin, headed for destruction until Jesus frees us. This this sounds horrible. Yeah, it is. And I think we forget that and we wonder, how could these things be happening in the world around us? Well, it's under the dominion of the evil one. And it's only going to get worse. The enslaving power of sin. Yeah. And it's, it, it, you are a slave to the one whom you obey. Yeah, right. Either righteousness or unrighteousness. So in Philippians three eighteen and 19, it highlights the differences between those who desire fellowship with Jesus Christ and those who focus on earthly pursuits. It says, for as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So what does it mean then to be citizens of the kingdom of God as opposed to what we've just described as citizens of the world? So we can't hold two passports. This is one time when dual citizenship isn't possible, even though we might see ourselves after we receive Christ as Savior and Lord, as citizens of the kingdom of God, sometimes we lapse into the habits and the culture we once belonged to. And we have to remind ourselves over again that we're no longer of that kingdom. So citizens of God's kingdom, when I'm caught up, Bill, in the world, depressed by what it offers, angry by what I observed, I remind myself to whom I belong and who my true citizenship resides. One source puts it this way, when we are born again by faith in Jesus Christ, according to John 3, 3, we are born into the kingdom of heaven, Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, here's the key passage, Bill. Speaking of those who have had spiritual rebirth, Philippians three twenty says unequivocally, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So being part of the kingdom of God, we're also, or we need to recognize we're citizens of an eternal kingdom. It doesn't end. This citizenship on this side of the equation in terms of the world will end. But the eternal kingdom goes on. So to be adopted into the family of God means that we become citizens of an eternal kingdom where our, ki- our father is the king, Our focus turns towards eternal things and storing up treasures in heavens. We become ambassadors to this earth. Mm, Yeah, we have. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest, and we are excited to be reminding you of we are, if you are part of God's family, citizens of heaven. And that's where we want to put our focus. All right, I'm looking at Matthew chapter 6, 
verses 19 to 21. Can I read that? Sure. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither wrath, moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's right. And in being an ambassador to this earth, we consider ourselves ambassadors until our Father sends for us and we go home, according to Ephesians 2, 18 through 22. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are, listen to this, Bill, no longer strangers and aliens to the kingdom of God, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. So while you are under the dominion of the evil one, you are aliens and strangers mm-hmm. to the kingdom of God. When you become a member of God's family, the alienship changes. You're no longer an alien or stranger in the kingdom of God, but you are to this world. So we're strangers, it says, Bill, in a foreign country. We live for a short time in these physical bodies, anticipating the bright future in our real home, while here we share Abraham's experience living like a stranger in a foreign country, looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Now, Matt uh, Watson, in his article titled uh, The Benefits of Heavenly Citizenship, makes the following point. He says, I'm a citizen of heaven. <clears throat> I belong body and soul to God. My ultimate loyalty must belong to him, not to the USA, which is secondary at best. My heavenly citizenship supersedes my earthly citizenship because God is the highest authority. Those Christians belong to God above. We are called to live here for a while, deployed in our various capacities as ambassadors to every people on behalf of King Jesus. That's a pretty powerful oh, statement. That's fantastic. Gives you clarity about your citizenship. Yeah, I love that. So, in essence, then, Bill, being a part of God's kingdom means we are under new management. When we receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, we're under new management. We owe our unconditional allegiance to a different authority, the King, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we receive a new passport. We have to hand over the old passport to this world gladly to receive this new passport as citizens of heaven with its benefits and responsibilities. Please. It's a great thing. Yeah, I love that trade. All right, Tiffany Cole in Heavenly Citizenship stresses that we now follow a different set of rules and laws. We are called to live our life in accordance to the laws of heaven, which is where our true citizenship lies, and not according to the world we live in. So let's summarize, if we could, Bill, the benefits and responsibilities associated with being citizens of heaven. All right. About, I'll do the benefits. Okay. You do the responsibilities. Okay. All right. We have adoption into the family of God. Salvation that begins with conversion. It's an, an event, right? It's mm-hmm. We're born from above, all right? Salvation that continues until we are in our heavenly home. So it's a present possession, and we're, we're living with it today. We are free from the penalty of sin. We're free from the power of sin. And we're ultimately freed from the presence of sin. We, we become new creatures. Of course, we learn about that in 2 Corinthians 5. 
And the Holy Spirit begins to transform our sinful, worldly desires into those that glorify God. (laughs) We learn about that in Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are given the power to become like Christ, Christ-likeness. And we are given the power of exiting the world's flawed value system and living for eternity in Christ's presence. That's 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Pretty significant set of benefits, Bill. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) All right, here's our responsibilities. To become holy. Being holy is uh, respecting the rules God gives you. It's like handling those rules carefully and correctly. Uh, Holy means set apart. Uh, We become ministers of reconciliation, we're told in in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 11. Uh, We're to represent God and his kingdom to a fallen world. We're to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Our code of conduct is what that is. It's our value system. It's values that were on the heart of God. It's the values that are the heart of God, and we inherit those. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, according to second or t- uh, Titus chapter two, verse eleven through fourteen, we are to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. That's another responsibility. We're to set our affections on things above, according to Colossians three one. We're to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's in us, according to First Peter three fifteen. We are not to be transformed to the pattern of this world. world Romans twelve two. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Now, this may seem like a tall order uh, to live by. And uh, if we did it on our own, it would be, really. However, the Bible tells us we're given everything we need to live this kind of life. First Peter 1.3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. So all that is required is obedience. The true standard for our expression to love to him. Greg, it also sounds like we need knowledge of him. Oh, yeah. That's and it's knowledge not, it's, it's not knowledge about him. It's an experiential knowledge of him, mm-hmm. a relational knowledge of him. Because the gospel isn't another replacement for the law. It supersedes the law because it's based on relationship, not out of obligation, but out of love. And the Amen. way in which we express that love is by obedience. And I'll say this again to the audience. Obedience, audience, will always produce strength. Disobedience always produces weakness. so true. Dr. Greg Borgon is my guest. We're talking about being a citizen of heaven. And that's an exciting uh, topic. We'll take a break and we come back lots more. Be right back. We want to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests, to articles about topics you are interested in, to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. You are a citizen of heaven. What a happy thought that that is. If you are 
a part of God's family. If you have come to know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you have the citizenship of heaven. We're talking about that today with Dr. Greg Borgon. Greg, how about we do a little recap, of uh, a little review, a little summary sure. of, of what we've just talked about? First of all, it, it's good to be reminded that we're not of this world, even though we're called into the world to minister to the world for the sake of the world, but not be of the world. And that our engagement with the world has eternal consequences. That's pretty significant. Rather than being caught up in the vagaries of every day's decisions, some honorable, some dishonorable, activities that we disdain versus activities that we applaud, and always on this cycle of of despair and hope, despair and hope, we need to continually remind ourselves that we are members of the kingdom of God. We belong to a completely different world, even though we're called to live in this world for a season. So in summary then, Scripture's pretty clear, Bill. We are citizens of heaven. It says in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What a great promise. I love that promise. But it's, but it's, a, you know, it's just a simple recognition. Hey, why am I getting so tied up in knots right now? I'm really a citizen of the kingdom of God. I know how all of this is going to end. Consequently, we're no longer, it says, foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Even though the world will see us now as foreigners, as aliens, as strangers, but like Abraham, we're sojourners. Uh, we only are there for a while. We're to move to a new land. So we need to not resent the fact that we're seen that way. It just recognize that's our status right now. So we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets of Christ Jesus, as we've read that passage before, um, is the cornerstone. Secondly, Bill, we are aliens and strangers. Dear friends, it says in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world, but not in God's kingdom, mm-hmm. to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives. This is really important. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. Mm. Now, what's powerful about that, and I was just with, with 20 men th- this last Saturday, I said to them again, and I've said it on your program before, nobody really cares what you have to say until they observe how you live. And if you live a life of integrity and honor under God's authority, people will ultimately want to hear what you have to say, even if they disagree with you. Why? Because they can't get past a life well lived. They can deconstruct your faith. They can argue about your beliefs. They can tell you your faith ends where my nose begins. They cannot argue with a life well lived, which is illustrated by this passage in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Number three, we are not to conform to the world. It says in Romans 12, 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
Now, this renewing is an ongoing exercise. Um, the biblical term for it is progressive sanctification, where we engage God's Word and we start to go ahead and see the fruits of that as our personality or our, our demeanor, our approach to life changes to bring glory to God. So we need to be renewing on a regular basis our mind, and that's done through the Word of God. Number four, we are not to be lovers of the world. It says in 1 John two fifteen through 17, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Yeah, okay, Greg, explain that one. Not to get too sidetracked, but do not love the world or anything in the world. What does that mean? It's talking about the ideologies of the world, the philosophy that suggests if you just put your nose to the grindstone, you can accomplish anything you want on your own. You're to maintain your independence regardless. You are the captain of your destiny. All of that is a worldly philosophy. And this passage is actually saying, don't be lovers of that kind of life. Don't embrace what you gave up for the cross. Don't live again, as Paul refers to, as the Gentiles do. In other words, as you once did. The way of this world, devoid of any relationship with your creator. Living life on the horizontal plane, oftentimes from a very selfish interest of uh, and, and satisfaction of our own desires. That's what it means. Don't get caught up in that again. Okay. I appreciate that because... If you just read it, because your mind will fill in blanks, Mm -hmm. and your grandkids are in this world. That's right. Yeah. They're going to have to learn to navigate it as well. I mean, one of the biggest reasons— You're not supposed to love them? Of course not. (laughs) You're supposed to love your grandchildren, but you're also supposed to love them enough to tell them how the world is and what to go ahead and be concerned about or worried about and teaching them to navigate an ever-darkening world. Love it. Great. Thank you for that. Yep. So it goes on to say, for everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. It's interesting, Bill, that those three areas are the three main strategies the enemy uses to get to us. He either tempts us through pleasure, or tempts us through the accumulation of possessions, or tempts us through pride. Mm -hmm. And that's what these three ideas are talking about. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but is from the world. So that's what we're not to love. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. If you take a look at, for instance, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and after the 40 days of fasting, Christ is tempted by the enemy. He's tempted in these three areas. Look at the passage carefully, and you'll see that repeated. Eve was tempted in these three areas. So it's interesting to me, as the Bible's laid out, at the beginning of the Bible, in the middle of the Bible, and at the end of the Bible, we're reminded about the three major strategies the enemy's used to try to derail us, the philosophies of this world. Mm-hmm. All right, number five, we are, we are uh, not friends with the world. You adulterous people, James 4.4 starts off by saying... Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That doesn't mean we don't live in the world. That doesn't mean we don't try to minister to the world. But what we're to do is not be of the world. And then finally, number six, 
we have a mandate to follow. I require men in, in my groups in phase one to memorize this whole passage because to me it's the epitome of the whole gospel, not only the benefits that accrue to our account with our new passport, but also our obligations. And it says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men and women. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, there's the deity of Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So the questions I would leave the audience with are three, Bill. To whose kingdom do you belong? To whom do you give your allegiance? Whose flag are you flying? Awesome. Now, I want to let everyone know that Greg gave a lot of scripture in this last uh, 30 minutes, and he's nice enough to make this document uh, that he created of today's teaching with all the scripture in it. So I'm going to include that in the podcast. So I appreciate that, Greg, making that available. My pleasure. Because I know when I'm listening and I hear a lot of uh, scripture verses rattled off, I try to remember them and you can't. And And then you panic, especially if you're in the car. (laughs) And you're such a thorough guy and such a a, a deep teacher that I would love to have this document available to listeners. So it will be available in the podcast uh, tonight. And I don't know how that works, but Rosie, you do. So uh, thank you for that. And Greg, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Always, Bill. Awesome. All right, Dr. Greg Borgon has been my guest in studio. Go to heartofawarrior.org. But get your questions ready because coming up next, Dr. Mark Muska is going to join me for Ask the Professor. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.